0: Uh, We're going to be continuing our study in the book of Acts uh, this morning, so you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 26 this morning. We are rapidly heading towards the end of the book of Acts. We only have eight chapters remaining. Uh, In a big Hollywood movie, we would be in the moment where the hero has to make the difficult decision to face the antagonist, even though he most certainly knows that it spells his doom. My favorite movie of all time is The Empire Strikes Back. Yes, I am not too ashamed to admit it. And there's a moment near the end of that film, and I call it a film intentionally because it's more than just a movie to me, uh, in which our hero, Luke Skywalker, has a vision through the Force. He sees his friends, Han Solo and Princess Leia, in Cloud City. And he knows that they're in the evil clutches of the Dark Lord of the Sith, Darth Vader. And Luke decides that he must go to them and he confronts Vader there in order to save those that he loves. Now, this is a difficult decision, as you can imagine. And it's made harder by the fact that Luke's most trusted advisors, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda, uh, both plead with him not to go. They know what awaits Luke there in this confrontation. And it's nothing but fear and pain and suffering and most likely death. You see, Yoda and Obi-Wan have their own force-inspired vision for, about Luke. and it's one in which he continues his work and eventually becomes a bigger impact in the universe for the ultimate battle against the evil empire. But despite their pleas, Luke is resolute and he climbs into his X-Wing fighter with his astromech R2-D2 by his side because he will not be dissuaded from his plans. Now, the question that we could ask, the question that I've been asking for 30-plus years is who was right? Were Obi-Wan and Yoda right? Well, I would argue that they were. They saw the future for Luke that included difficult and maybe fatal things, and those things came to pass. I mean, by the end of the movie, he gets his hand cut off, he finds out that the worst person in the universe is his dad, and he falls into a bottomless pit. Not exactly a great outcome. Now, on the other hand, Luke was willing to head into that difficulty and face his own death for what he loved, and he also succeeded. He helped rescue his friends And although he did not defeat and turn Darth Vader to the light, he did survive the encounter to fight another day. And I think this morning, you're going to see some pretty incredible parallels between what happens in The Empire Strikes Back and what's facing Paul. And really, it just gave me an excuse to talk about Star Wars this morning, which is always a bonus for me. So there we go. Back in chapter 19, just a couple weeks ago, uh, there was a moment that Paul, to quote him, Resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. Paul had made the trip back to Jerusalem a number of times since his conversion. Uh, Depending on how you count what he mentions in the scriptures, it's probably his fifth time that he's returned to visit the Jewish church that's there. Most notably in chapter 15, he was there for the Jerusalem Council, in which he and the majority of Jesus' disciples gathered together to hash out what would be required of Gentile believers to join the church. And this issue, the issue of how Gentile converts should become part of the church would be a major theme of Paul's work. In fact, it's a major thorn in his side throughout all of his ministry. And here in this moment, it's poised to explode. Let's turn to the scriptures and read and see what we can find there. But before we do, let's pray that the Holy Spirit would help apply this to our lives. God, we come before you this morning as your people, your church. God, we hold the scripture in our laps, not just to learn, but to be changed. God, but It would be presumptuous of us to think that we can do it on our own or that my words could do anything apart from you and your Holy Spirit's work in our lives. God, we pray that you would apply these words to us, that we would be changed, that we would be more faithful, and that we would look more like Jesus today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We open the chapter and we see Paul leaving... Uh, Out from Ephesus by ship. Now Ephesus is on the western tip of what would be modern day Turkey on the Aegean Sea. Last week we read Paul's final words of encouragement to the church that he had planted there in Ephesus and we leave the people of the church there on the beach, they're praying, they're weeping. And they're embracing each other, and they stand there on the sand, waving to Paul as he sails away. Paul's on a merchant ship that is sailing around the southern part of Turkey and ends up in Patara. There he disembarks and seeks out another ship that will carry him further along the Mediterranean uh, towards Syria. And he finds one, and they sail and end up in the city of Tyre. It's a major trade city on the coast in modern-day Syria, and they end up having a week-long layover there In the city, as cargo is unloaded from the ship and new cargo is loaded for continuing the trip down the coast. And Paul does what he always does when he rolls into town. He finds the Christians that are there. In verse 4, it says this. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Here's, here's where things start to get a little confusing. Paul in chapter 19, which we looked at a little bit earlier there, said he resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, and now just two or three chapters later, the believers in Tyre through the Spirit are telling him not to go. So who's right? Uh, well, we aren't sure. And to be honest, I read about six commentaries this week preparing for this morning, Uh, and they all seem to disagree about what exactly is going on. But we're going to continue reading, and hopefully we can figure out where we're going with this. Now, Paul ignored their pleas not to go to Jerusalem, and when the week is up, he reboards the ship, and we see a replay of his leaving of Ephesus. They come down the beach, they embrace, they pray for each other, and then they leave. The next stop is just a short day's journey down the coast to Ptolemaeus, where there's another day layover. He's finds the believers that are there, they spend the evening together, and the next day they reboard and head a little further down the coast to Caesarea, where Paul is done with the sailing portion of this journey, and he's going to begin heading over land toward Jerusalem, but not before spending time with, guess who, the church in Caesarea. Now, Caesarea is a major trading city in the area, and maybe unsurprisingly, it's also home to a thriving Christian community. This one's actually home to a famous believer of the time, Philip the Evangelist. This is the same Philip who shared the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch back in chapter 8. Picking up in verse 8 of our chapter, let's see what's happening here. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. Here we have another call from the Spirit about what is going to happen to Paul if he continues down this path to Jerusalem. This time a special guest is brought in and he delivers his message with a little flourish and panache as he ties up Paul with a belt and he says, this is what's going to happen to you. Now, immediately Luke, who's recording this account and was Paul's traveling companion, along with the other people that are there in the room who witnessed this, begin to beg him not to continue in this trip to Jerusalem. Why all the drama about Paul going to Jerusalem? He's been there many times before, but this time is just surrounded with this sense of heavy dread and fear about what's going to happen if he heads into town. And it's not just the prophets that are concerned, because as they're asking him to stop, Paul seems to know what he's walking into, because he responds to them quickly. And here's what he says, "'What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus.'" His response to them seems to diffuse the argument in the conversation because they quickly see how confident, how resolute, how insistent Paul is. And in verse 14, you can feel their resignation as they say, and since he was not persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. It's been about five years since Paul has visited Jerusalem, and a lot can happen in five years, and a lot has happened in the last five years in this volatile ancient city, Judea. The region that was home to both Jerusalem and Caesarea was a Roman province. And political upheaval in this area was always bubbling up under the surface. We saw it during Jesus' time a couple decades earlier from this. There's a constant back and forth in which there's a Jewish rebellion coming up. And then it's stomped out by the Roman leadership of the region. These moments of insurrection and rebellion have become more and more heated. And more of a constant problem over these last five years. Political tensions are at an all-time high. People are on the streets. They are talking about their political disagreements and about the best way forward for their nation. Tensions are high. I'm sure you don't know anything about that, right? What we see in their warning is that there is a heavy and deep pride in Jewish nationalism that's risen in their population over this past half decade. And everyone seems to understand what is at stake in Jerusalem. Paul doesn't deny that there's an inherent danger there. Instead, he simply says, I'm willing to endure it. Why? What would motivate Paul Who's right and wrong in this situation? Commentaries seem to come at it from two directions. And maybe that seems obvious, but here they are. Number one, one side sees Paul as heroic and moved by the Spirit to head to Jerusalem. And the warnings that he receives are from people who love him. And they wrongly interpret the difficult prophecies that they see about suffering and hardship as something that they should encourage Paul to avoid. They want him to be safe. They value him and his leadership in the church. They want to see his important gospel work continue in the world and they think that if he goes to Jerusalem these prophecies are saying that will stop. Now, there's another set of commentaries that take the opposite approach and what they would say is that Paul is stubborn and pig-headed. And that they view this move to Jerusalem as a grand mistake on Paul's part and that he's willingly ignoring the consistent and repeated warnings of the spirit through the Christian community every step along the way. Ray Stedman, who gets quoted many times around here, in fact, Uh, has titled his sermon on this section of scripture, Paul's mistake. So which one is it? Well, I'm not sure that we can know with 100% confidence either way, but they gave me the pulpit, so I'm going to tell you what I think. (laughs) Uh, I'm pretty comfortable committing to the idea that Paul's doing the right thing in heading to Jerusalem. And because It seems to me that it's very much in line with Paul's vision for his mission in the world. A special role that was given and assigned to him by Jesus directly. Last week in Acts 20, we heard from Paul as he gave us his vision of what he intends. Here's what he said. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I don't account my life of any value nor is precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Uh, I have to admit, um, I have done a lot of wrestling and struggling with this section of scripture over the past two weeks as I've been preparing um, they get, you know, I get one or two shots a year to preach, and so I really want to do a good job. You know? my, my heart as a pastor wants desperately to give you good biblical advice in this one moment to de- about how we can determine God's will for our lives. And my fear is that we're going to look at this story and then use it as a proof text about how to make decisions for life. And I think that would be a significant mistake for us unless we take some time to look at some of the circumstances that are motivating this situation. What we have in the story here is Paul, who is moved and convicted about what he has decided to do. At every step along the way, he is resolute about his decisions. And yet at the same time, at every stop, the believers in that place foresee what is waiting for Paul if he goes forward and they warn him to stop. How are we supposed to feel about this as it relates to our decision-making and our desire to move with the Spirit of God in our lives. Now, first of all, I just want to get this out of the way before we continue, all right? You ain't Paul, okay? And I include you, me in the you. Uh, that's not to say that Paul isn't just a man or that he's somehow infallible, but he was specifically hand-chosen by a personal vision of the risen Jesus for a mission of which was one of a kind. That kind of puts you in a special category like right off the bat, right? Hey, Jesus personally visited me, he struck me blind and he commissioned me as an apostle. If you can legitimately say that, then we're gonna treat you differently, okay? But I do think there are some things that we can learn here about following the Spirit's guidance in our life. And the first one might be obvious, it's hard. The Spirit of God indwells his people and the Spirit is always working in the world, but tapping into that wisdom, tapping into that knowledge with clarity is often difficult and it's often an obtuse thing. Paul had one vision and conviction. The believers that he ran into had another and it was directly opposed to the one that Paul had. But difficulty discerning what the Spirit wants for our life should not keep us from pursuing the direction and wisdom the Spirit has on our lives. Paul is 100% clear about what he has been asked to do in the world. And because he's clear about it, he's not confused about how to move forward. We ask questions all the time about direction, right? About what's God's will for our life? Where does God want me to go to college? What job does he want me to take? Who does he want me to marry? How many kids am I supposed to have? Where should we live? Which house should we buy? Which car should we drive? I don't want to give you the impression that God doesn't care about those things because he cares deeply about you and the decisions and the factors that make up your life. But I think we often focus so much on the details of our lives that we miss the mission of our lives. Paul knows his mission. Be a faithful and confident witness to the good news of the gospel in the world. And as he moves, everything is processed through his mission, because he knows and is unshakable in his mission and role in the world, then the details and the fears that come along with it become secondary things. Who, wa- who Paul was determined what Paul would do. And we should be taking the same approach. There's a vil- very familiar passage of scripture that comes from the apostle Peter in a letter he wrote, 1 Peter, and, and he says this to us, which I'm sure you've probably heard before. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We can move in confidence in the world if we move out of an understanding of who we are. We are God's people. We are his possession. We've been given a role in the world akin to a priest a role to represent God to a world that is far from him, to be the Jesus-shaped representative in every place that we occupy, to proclaim, to proclaim in work, to proclaim in deed, in life, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. And if we can own that, if we can really own it the way Paul owns it, then the specifics of what we decide for the general shape of our lives can be secondary. Where should I go to school? What job should I take? Who should I marry? Pray about it, meditate about it, seek the scriptures about it. Go to your Christian community and invite them into that same activity to speak into it in your life. And then, if you can be faithful in that calling, if you can be faithful to who you've been called to be in that place, with that job, with that spouse, at that school, in that home, then move with confidence. Because then the second thing that I think we can learn from this The Spirit is not constrained by your actions to achieve God's goals. If Paul going to Jerusalem was the right or the wrong decision isn't the critical issue here. Paul was going because he was acting in line with who he was, with who he had been called to be. And as we see in the rest of the book of Acts... The Spirit used his life and his commitment to spreading the gospel to achieve God's goals in the world. And if we need evidence that it's true, how about the fact that we're all sitting in a room t- 2,000 years later debating the minutia of what Paul did or didn't do in this moment and singing songs about King Jesus. I'd say it worked out just fine. A warning to us before we move on, though. Your feelings are not what determine if you should do something or not. The last thing the modern American church of which we are a part needs is to be greater encouraged to seek your own heart and your own individualism. Do what feels right. Stand up for yourself. Do what you want to do. Make yourself happy. You deserve this. These are the slogans of the foolish wisdom of our age. These are things that the world tell tell us that have a semblance of wisdom but are actually words of destruction if your heart is guiding you towards selfishness, pride, being self-serving, inwardness, sin, then your heart needs to be rebuked and the Christian community around you should be encouraged to help you in that because the words of God's wisdom sound very different. They sound like the last shall be first. Love your neighbor as yourself. Lay down your life for others. Love your enemies. Be peacemakers. It's a very different message and your heart will push against it. So if we move forward here with the idea that we're going to commit that Paul was doing the right thing in moving to Jerusalem, then we can see what motivates him. First of all, his mission, but I think there are other two, two other things that clearly motivate him. Number one is Paul's love for his own people. Next week, Brian, who's one of my best friends in the world, uh, is going to be teaching you. He's not sitting over here. I just pointed in that direction. Just kidding. Uh, He's going to be teaching you about Paul's speech that he ends up giving in Jerusalem. And you're going to hear that it's a, an extremely Jewish speech. I don't want to steal his thunder. But because there are other places in the scripture I can go to to talk about Paul's Jewish bona fides, including uh, a letter that he wrote to the church in Galatia, Galatians chapter 1. This is what Paul says about himself. He says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul was born the son of a Pharisee. He was raised in a family that loved God and was passionate about their heritage and their place in the world. And he himself trained under one of the most respected rabbi of the day. And he became a Pharisee himself. He was, as he says in that section, extremely zealous for his people and their way of life. And when Paul is converted, when Jesus calls him to faith, he does not break his love for his people. He still deeply cares for them. And now, and probably, he loves them even more because of his heart that desires to see them understand the truth. How do we know he loves them even more? Because he's doing literally what Jesus commands in John 15. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Paul is walking into what is surely a difficult and violent situation because of his love. He understands fully that he's facing rejection, beatings, and a good possibility of death. He's faced it nearly everywhere that he's went, and now he's going from the frying pan directly into the fire, and he does it willingly. Why? Because he loves his people, and he's desperate to win them for the cause of Christ. He's desperate for them to see the love of God as demonstrated on the cross. He's desperate for them to understand grace and to see the hope found in the resurrection. I am deeply convicted by Paul's love for them and causes me to ask myself the question is there anyone that I love that much outside of my immediate family is there anyone I so desperately desire to see and understand the freedom and the hope of the gospel that I would be willing to lay down my life to reach them heck is there anybody I'd willing to be uncomfortable in order to reach them And Paul was doing this for his countrymen who hated his guts. And not generally speaking, we hate Paul by name. I think about what happened in Charlottesville this last week. I think about those angry, hate-filled, racist faces marching and chanting under the light of torches. I'm upset about that. It, It made me angry. I condemn them and their beliefs. I'm willing to say to anyone who will listen that they're wrong and that their views are not only un-American but they're unbiblical and they're deeply un-Christian to the core. But do I love them? Would I be willing to put myself in harm's way to stand before them because I desperately care for their lives? That is a harder question. Paul did, and Jesus does. Do I? Secondly, Paul loved the church. Paul was going back to Jerusalem, not just to reach his Jewish family, but because his Christian brothers and sisters already were there. The church in Jerusalem was overseen by Peter and James and was flourishing there in Jerusalem. They had faced hardship. They'd been through a famine, and they were now suffering from extreme poverty. Not only that, but Paul was fighting a rift that existed in the church from the very beginning, a rift between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. It was a rift that was wide and only getting wider, especially as the church was taking on greater and greater influence and impact in the ancient Near East under Paul's leadership. He loved them, and so he went to them. Because Paul saw that rift in the church and he hated it and he wanted it healed, he brought with him a large financial gift that he had collected from the church in Asia, the second of its type, in order to physically and concretely demonstrate the love that those Gentile churches had for their Hebrew brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. They were willing to give of themselves, to sacrifice of their own good, and Paul was willing to go in the way of physical harm in order to bring unity to God's church. What are you willing to do to preserve unity in God's church? What am I willing to do to preserve unity? Are we willing to speak well of our brothers and sisters when there's a misunderstanding or a disagreement? Are we willing to give each other the benefit of the doubt when trouble bubbles up? Are we willing to believe the best of each other? Are we willing to lay down our preferences in order to hold the church together, in order to love each other more fully? I hope we are, because if we take Jesus seriously... He says that it's the way that the world truly knows that we are his disciples, by the way that we love each other. When Paul arrives in Jerusalem, he does the same thing that he always does. He finds his fellow believers, and they welcome him, and they arrange a formal meeting for the next day between James, Jesus' brother, and the other elders who are in charge of the church there. And The next day, Paul brings them stories of what he's been up to for the past five years. He regales them with tales of God moving among the Gentiles, and the incredible growth of the church in the wider world. And they're happy to hear it, and they praise God for moving, but then they very quickly move to a warning and concern for Paul's safety. Let's pick up the text. Here's what they say. They said to him, "'You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law, and they've been told about you, that you teach all the Jews that are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses.' telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? Certainly they will hear that you've come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expense so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there's nothing in what they have been told about you but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who believe, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what's been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took these men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. They tell Paul the church has taken deep root in Jerusalem. Thousands have come to faith in Jesus, but there is a strain of deep Jewish nationalism that runs through their Christianity, and their enemy number one is Paul. The Jew who has committed himself to spreading the gospel out in the Gentile world, they begin to tell stories back home about what Paul's doing out there. Rumors and gossip begin to swirl that Paul was telling even the Jews in Gentile country that they needed to abandon their cultural heritage. And there was a growing anger and mistrust of Paul based strictly on rumor. And James and the other elders knew well that there was trouble waiting for Paul. So they have a plan to calm and reassure the crowd. They say, Paul, if you would simply engage in Hebrew customs and practices, you can physically demonstrate that you're not rejecting your people or your heritage or our culture So they ask him to go through a week-long Nazarite vow, one that Paul actually just a few chapters ago went through. um, And to join up with some other men, local men who are known in the community in order to pay for them and practice the same vow that they're practicing. And in doing so, Paul could show them that what they assumed about him was wrong and provide hopefully a calming effect and a platform to be able to address them in the moment of confrontation that's going to be coming. And next week, no pressure, Brian, but um, you got to talk them through what happens when Paul enters the temple. We can see if all this planning and this action works. But before we close our time today, we just have a few more minutes. I'd like to take a moment to, to look at exactly what was it that was so deeply dividing the church. What was the beef that the Christians in Jerusalem had with Paul? We know that they were mistaken about what they were claiming about him, but what was it that they thought he was teaching and what made them so upset And then lastly, what was Paul actually claiming about the role of Jewish history and tradition in practice in this new world? Paul, we know, for much of the New Testament, was a master at contextualizing the gospel in the culture in which he would find himself. He was a Roman citizen, trained with a Greek education, with the highest level of Hebrew training and rank. Paul was able, because of that unique makeup, to move easily from context to context in the surrounding world and in every step of that he worked very hard to keep the main thing the main thing faith alone demarcates the people of God it's always been that way all the way back to Abraham cultural practices religious habits social norms do not save people faith in King Jesus does The claim that James lays at the feet of Paul is that the community there has heard that Paul is telling the Jews in the wider world that following Jesus means abandoning their culture, that they should abandon their history, their practices, the very thing that for thousands of years have set them aside as God's people, as Israel. They claimed that Paul was saying, abandon the law of Moses, forget the Sabbath, ditch the sacrifices, empty the temple, stop with the circumcision. And in this misunderstanding, they assumed that Paul was saying everything God had given them to set them apart was a mistake, a meaningless artifact of history. For all of Israel's recorded history, these are the things that they had worked so hard to preserve, to protect, to defend, and now they believe that one of their own was undermining them and their way of life. Yeah, they, they wanted Jesus but they wanted him on their terms. They wanted a king of the Jews and for finally someone to acknowledge that we've been right all along and that we are just before God as his people. And if you want access to God, that's great, but you got to come through us. They wanted a reigning Jewish Messiah. The problem was they just, they didn't understand Paul's message, he wasn't presenting an either-or option for them. He was telling the good news that all of their story had been looking forward to, all the prophets had pointed toward, all the sacrifices had imaged, all the scripture had promised, and now it was here, it had arrived in Jesus. Instead of wiping away the history of the people, he was preaching that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that they had ever hoped for. Abraham's promise to be a blessing to the whole world was fulfilled in the blessing of Jesus. The law of Moses, once external guidance, was now written on the hearts of man. The repeated sacrificial system meant to atone for sin was now complete in Jesus, the perfect and final sacrifice. Circumcision, a physical symbol of being set apart, was now a spiritual symbol of a set apart life. Food laws, purification rites, cleansing rituals, all designed to keep a people clean, were now fully realized as they were made clean through the blood of Jesus. The temple, a place of worship, a house for the Almighty, now lived in the hearts of his people, and the whole earth was his temple. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the very heart of it. The law, a beautiful, God-given, cultural, and spiritual guide, was designed to shape a people for a relationship with God and the world around them. But it was powerless to overcome the sin-warped, rebellious hearts of humanity. And in Christ, that dead, stone-cold heart could be removed and a heart of flesh could be inserted in its place. The law wants a set of rules that we could not and frankly would not Follow. We're now written on the very hearts of man, achieving what the law never could, a regenerated humanity, a reclamation of our role as God's people, now clothed in the hope and righteousness of Jesus, risen to a new and a full life, remade in the image of our creator. We are recreated in the likeness of our Father. The power of God is on display in the world. No tent, no tabernacle, no temple represents him any longer but a people. His temple in every city, in every neighborhood, in every culture, in every way of life, in every race, all over this planet, a priesthood of believers to the whole world. Yeah, their hoped Messiah had come. And in his name, all nations were now streaming to hear the good news of the king of all things who had come to reign. All people were being called to a reconciliation with their God. Yeah, Jesus died as the king of the Jews, but only so he could rise as the king of all. And all God's people said, next week we're going to find out if Paul can actually win him over with this argument. Let's pray and thank God this morning. God, thank you so much for your time, the way that you love us, your scripture, and the opportunity to be here to study Paul's life. God, we pray that it would transform us. We want to look like Jesus who we love. Help us to be faithful representatives on mission in your world because we love him. We pray this in his name. Amen.